What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Common dreams, commentary, three dark and disturbing reasons why Trump could win again. Number one, people think the economy is great because unemployment is down at three point something percent. Interesting little factoid, the Department of Labor is now considering a person employed if they work as little as one hour a week. One hour a week. Right. Meanwhile, the bottom 60% of pay earners in the United States are experiencing a dramatic increase in one thing and a decrease in others. The decrease is in pay, almost a third of America's workforce. The entire workforce of the United States works for less than $12 an hour. Uh, nearly all without health insurance or any other benefits. And what the bottom 60% of earners are doing so well at? Dying in increasing rates from drugs and suicides. It's an explosion. That's our booming economy, right? Number two, fear of the socialists. And this might actually work because inequality has gotten so much worse as a result of Reaganism and Trumpism and all this kind of stuff in our so-called free trade policies. And this rampant inequality actually, as uh, uh, Wilkerson and Pickett pointed out, Robert Wil- Richard Wilkerson and Kate Pickett pointed out that when inequality increases, the ability of people to trust strangers or trust society diminishes. So encountering something you don't know makes you even more wary of it, like something like democratic socialism, something that's not well known to a lot of Americans. And finally, nationalism, this whole thing of, you know, getting rid of people who don't look like us, talk like us, or pray like us, or not letting them in, you know, has has gone really huge. I wanted to talk about trade. We're hearing all kinds of stuff about trade, about trade policies, about, you know, what Donald Trump is saying, about whether this is smart trade policy or stupid trade policy, whether it's true that China's paying the tariffs or not, all these kinds of things. Greg Sargent has an interesting piece in today's Washington Post. It's titled, Trump is staking re-election on one of his biggest lies, and the, the lie is that China's paying the tariffs. No, that's not the case, but broadly speaking, Donald Trump is actually right, in my opinion, about our failed trade policies since 1993, when both George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton in 92 ran for election on the platform of, I will sign NAFTA. 
which we know has cost us a million jobs or more. In fact, NAFTA had built into it a program to provide money, federal money, federal tax dollars for, quote, displaced workers to help retrain workers who lost their jobs to NAFTA. And hundreds of thousands of workers have actually qualified for this program and had money set aside to pay for them to go to trade schools because they lost their jobs because principally American auto factories and washing machine, you know, large appliance factories and TV factories all moved to Mexico as a result of NAFTA. And the problem was that these people got, you know, quote, training in for-profit phony baloney schools that trained them for BS jobs that don't exist. It was just, you know, it was just another federal money transfer to the for-profit education sector. It was a scam. The whole NAFTA thing, in my opinion, was a scam. And, you know, Ross Perot is right about that. And Donald Trump is right about that. And that's a problem for Democrats because about half of the Democratic Party agrees with what I just said. And about half of the Democratic Party thinks, no, no, if we just keep doing this free trade thing, someday it'll work out for us. I'm sorry, it's never going to work out for us. Every other country in the world, literally every other developed country and many of the developing countries in the world, have protectionist trade policies. They're not all tariffs. Most of them actually, the advanced countries now, when all the tariffs went down, replaced them with VAT taxes, value-added taxes. You've heard my rants about those over the years. Germany, for example, has a value-added tax. Every stage of the manufacture process, converting iron ore into iron, small tax for the increase in value, the value added. Turn that iron into steel, small tax. Turn that steel into rolled steel, small tax. Turn that rolled steel into a car door, small tax. Put that door on the car, small tax. And when you're all done, the total tax is 17% is the value added tax in Germany. And in most European countries, it runs from 15 to 18%. And so if you're a German and you buy a car made in Germany, you pay a 17% fat tax. But if Germany wants to export a car to the United States because we are not Germans, we don't have to pay the VAT tax. So that's a 17% discount on the export of a German car. On the other hand, if Chevy wants to make a car in the United States and sell it to somebody in Germany, at the moment that car hits the German border, they're going to hit it with a 17% VAT tax because, after all, German car buyers are supposed to be paying a 17% VAT tax. So you add 17 and 17, that's 34. This is functionally a 34% tariff on exports and imports to Germany. And it's not just Germany. As I said, it's every single country in Europe. This is a large part of the Brexit vote, is that the Brits want their tariffs back, so that, or at least they want their VAT tax to apply to the rest of Europe, so when they sell things into Europe, they can make some money on it. Or, the, or actually, it's more like the jobs will stay home. So Trump is right about this. It may be that most Americans don't understand the nuance of it, but he is right. And he's not doing it right, but he's right about the problem that ever since, ever since, you know, basically Bill Clinton came in and said, yeah, we're going to do free trade. That was the end of literally millions and millions of American jobs. And this could get Trump reelected in 2020, no matter how this current fight with China turns out. Greg Sargent in his piece is saying no deal followed by still more tariffs will allow Trump to claim he's being tough on China. And he believes this will be a political winner, even if the imposed tariffs impose still more economic pain. I agree with Trump on this. I think he's right. 
And I think that all the all the the particularly the Democratic uh, the people on the Democratic side who are, you know, the old fashioned uh, let's keep free trade. You know, the Obama and Clinton neoliberal consensus, the Tony Blair's, the you know, that part of our Democratic Party. I think that, you know, if 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 they don't start singing a different tune, the American workers are not going to vote them into office. Whereas you've got a bunch of progressives, you've got Bernie, you've got Elizabeth Warren, you've got, there's a bunch of, uh, of more progressive candidates who for some time have been saying this trade policy absolutely sucks. I mean, the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus was opposed to NAFTA. They were opposed to, the, to allowing China uh, most favored nation status. That also happened in the 90s. And that led Walmart to go from, when I remember the first Walmart in the 80s opened up in Atlanta when Louise and I were living there. The big sign over the front of it was 100% made in the USA. And now it's 100% made in China. Why? Because of these trade policies. And workers actually believe that Trump is fighting for their jobs. I mean, the problem is he's doing it by executive action and declaring states of emergency, which means that his tariffs are only temporary. But here's how tariffs work. If, if uh, say, uh, we're talking about socks, right? We don't make socks in the United States anymore. So the, the way that Trump's tariffs are being essentially ridiculed by commentators on TV is, okay, he puts a tariff on socks coming in from China, so now Americans have to pay 25% more for their socks. But, you know, there's not a sock factory in the U.S. just waiting to open tomorrow morning, so we just get higher prices. Well, you know, that's half true and half true. The fact of the matter is that if that 25% tariff on socks raises the price of socks in the United States to the point where it's now profitable to make socks in the United States, somebody will own a, open a factory. And it's not just socks. It's true of everything, right? Somebody will open a factory in this country to make them. It's a business opportunity. This is what entrepreneurs do. They look for opportunities. The problem is building a factory to manufacture socks or computers or anything else is a multi-year, multi-million dollar process. And if you know that the only reason that socks have, the price of socks has risen to the point where it's profitable to make them in the United States is because Trump declared a state of emergency around trade and is executing executive, uh, whatever you call them, proclamations, executive orders to impose these tariffs, then as a business person, you also know that when Trump leaves office, which could be in 15, 16 months, the next person in, particularly if it's, a, if it's a Democrat who believes in neoliberal trade policies, will simply reverse the tariffs. And they'll go back to the, you know, the Clinton-Obama, Bush, Bush-Reagan policies. And then, you know, you're sitting here with a factory you just invested millions of dollars in to make socks, and the price of socks just dropped 25% because we're buying them from China again with no tariffs. So the right way to do this would be to do it through Congress and get actual legislation passed to, to, you know, to put these tariffs in place. But Trump can't do that. He doesn't know how to, he doesn't know how to govern. And the Republicans around him are not going to do that because they all love free trade and they hate tariffs. So, you know, it's like, <sighs> this is a real tough one. And, you know, it's uh, so... Nobody's going to do this. I mean, a true trade policy would take us back to strong jobs like we had in the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the early 80s. That kind of trade policy actually requires Congress, and it could be done through tariffs, or, frankly, more rationally, I think it could be done through a VAT tax, 
Although you say tax and Grover Norquist goes nuts and the Republican Party melts down. But if we had a VAT tax like the rest of the world does, we wouldn't need tariffs. And we would be more competitive and manufacturing would come back to the United States. But again, this doesn't reduce well to a bumper sticker. But I'm telling you, the working people in the heartland, I, you know, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I grew up in a lower middle class, blue collar community. I'd say 80% of the people in the neighborhood that I grew up in in Lansing, Michigan, their parents worked either at General Motors or Fisher Body or a local company like my dad did in a tool and die shop, a local company that supplied parts and material to Fisher Body or General Motors. And those people know what happened. We saw it happening in the 70s. When uh, in the very beginning, when we started dropping tariffs on Japanese cars and Honda and Toyota started selling cheap cars into the U.S. market. And in Lansing, in my town, in Lansing, if you drove one of those cars, it was guaranteed it was going to get keyed. I mean, workers know what's going on and they believe that Trump is fighting for them. And in some ways he is. And this is a really difficult thing for me to say. But Democrats need to figure this stuff out or they're going to lose the next election and they're going to continue losing elections. You know, Bill Clinton made a terrible decision in 92 and Democrats have been sticking with this along with all the Republicans institutionally. And it's time to change. This is the Tom Hartman program. The Democratic Party needs to join with the progressives in the Democratic Party and start calling for protectionist trade policies. Peter in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today? You're hitting it right on with trade. And I tell you what, it's just like trade Medicare for all. We control the House, but I don't see any scheduled votes or new legislation going through. With regard to trade, no. With Medicare for all, there's actually a bill before the House that may well pass. I'd like to see some votes scheduled, though. That would be great. But on trade, though, this, this is what I always tell people. This is how Trump won the presidency. Yep. Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. All that were gutted by NAFTA and NTR for China. I lived in Wisconsin at that time. Even the people who didn't lose their jobs didn't get a raise and had to pay more for their benefits because there was the threat for the last 20 years that if you don't give up, we're going to move it to child and slave labor. And it drove me insane because the Democrats were killing their base voters. Yep. When the Democratic Party, when, you know, when Al Fromm and Bill Clinton started the, the DLC back in, in uh, 89, and then got Tony Blair in on the act and everything, and, and took this roadshow live in 92 in the presidential election against Ross Perot, and then George Herbert yeah. Walker Bush was right there with Bill Clinton. You know, so you had the two establishment candidates both saying, yeah, we need to turn all our jobs over to China. And, and you had Ross Perot saying, uh, and Mexico, and you had Ross Perot saying, no way, you're going to lose millions of jobs. 20% of America voted for Ross Perot, even though they thought he was a crazy old coot in every other regard. And his vice presidential candidate, Admiral Stockdale, came across as, you know, he was actually a very well-respected military guy, but he didn't come across that way. He came across as incompetent. And still we voted for him because we knew what was going to happen with this trade policy. And and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Well, Tom, just tell me the secret is how you can get Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to stop listening to the corporate donors 
and start listening to the people. Well, it's not because just the corporate donors. Right it's now, also it's also these people who are writing op-eds for the newspapers and things. Everybody thinks they've got this all figured out, this whole trade thing. And, and what they figured out was an arguable policy back in 92. We didn't really know for sure. Although, you know, I'd say 200 years of history proved it. But now it's not even arguable. And they're just sounding like idiots. Peter, spot on. Thank you very much for the call. We have to be telling the Democrats we want protectionist trade policies. Trump isn't doing it right, but he's going to win with us. To the Tom Hartman program. I'm telling you, he has a good chance of winning in 2020 if he keeps on this trade hobby horse. And he's going to. He knows what's going on. Hey, Louise and I have been using CBD for a couple of years now for basically pain relief and sleep, but we had been using CBD that also had some pot in it, I suppose, because of, you know, it's legal here in Oregon. Um, But now there's a CBD oil that's legal all over the United States. It's the best quality you can get. And it's derived from hemp, which is, you know, related to marijuana, but it's not marijuana. And so it's it's legal and it doesn't get you high. And but it does, you know, have these extraordinary properties of uh, pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. It's from New Leaf Naturals. NuleafNaturals.com is the website. Um, CBD oil, non-intoxicating, so it's ideal if you're looking for the health benefits of cannabinoids without, you know, getting high. This does not get you high. It's non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. And the, th- this is the brand that, that Louise and I trust and use, New Leaf, NU Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality concentrated CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States. And as I said, the only ingredient is hemp. So it's totally pure and simple and legal. So go to newleafnaturals.com, N-U-Leafnaturals.com to save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get 30% off. And if you're the first person to tweet me the newleafnaturals.com website, I'll send you a free bottle of New Leaf Natural CBD oil. Ron in Buffalo, New York. Yeah, uh, you had mentioned way back a possible general strike. If a union or group of union leaders did that, wouldn't that violate Taft-Hartley? Because Taft-Hartley, specifically this idea of secondary boycotts or one union helping another union or just right. generally doing things of a political nature that aren't specific to a particular issue, I thought that would they certainly would, somebody would make a case against that and try to put them all in jail, wouldn't they? I think you're probably right, Ron. And, and, and Taft-Hartley does have a lot of those sort of weird provisions that make it harder for unions to cooperate. On the other hand, you've got unions that are members of unions Union associations. I believe the UAW is still part of the AFL-CIO. And so, you know, a, an umbrella union could probably do something like that. But I was not advocating that because I don't think it, it'll work in America. You know, we've got 6% of our private workforce is unionized. And, you know, another 5% yeah. of our workforce is federal and state employees who are unionized. Yeah. So you've got a total of 11% of the country unionized. That's not enough mass. That's not enough of a threshold to actually run a general strike. So the, the caller who called up and said, why don't we just all take you know, a month off work? Literally half of America cannot sustain a four 
$400 expense that they're not expecting, you know, a, a, a breakdown of their car or a medical expense. Literally half of America can't do that. And so clearly they couldn't pass on going to work for a month. And, oh, yeah. and, you know, without a union paying strike pay and things like that, you know, it works in Germany where you got 80 percent unionization or, you know, in most of the European countries where it, it runs for anywhere from 75 to 95 percent unionization. But it won't work here. Uh, you know, Reaganism has destroyed the workers' rights. And also, the union movement in this country never was that ideological. You know, right. as much as, you know, because I think of McCarthyism and, and also the divide and conquer, the North and South, whatever the power structure is used. In Europe, they're overtly, you're a socialist? Yeah, I'm a socialist. So what? I believe this and this and this. In this country, it never became the predominant ideology that we want a social democracy with, with certain rights guaranteed that capitalists can't take away from us. Yeah, I would argue that actually we do did in the 30s and and the early 40s and maybe well, yeah, even through the end then, of the 40s yeah, um, then it was crushed it was crushed during the McCarthy period oh, yeah. during that you know this Cold War scare and uh, well in 1947 Taft-Hartley where you yeah, started this exactly. conversation I mean that's exactly. that's really what took down the union movement in the United States it gave individual states the right and to I, ban or close shops why isn't Bernie Sanders on this saying, you know, we got it. Bernie on this program has probably said a hundred times we should repeal Taft-Hartley. Oh, did he? I, my, oh, absolutely. My it, is, it is a mantra for people in the Progressive Caucus. Mark Pocan has said it. I'm not sure if the topic has ever come up for Ro Khanna, but I'm sure he would advocate that. I don't think there's a Democrat out there. I mean, you know, Taft-Hartley, Harry Truman vetoed it. And Congress overrode his veto. I mean, that was that little two-year window where the Republicans controlled the House. It was just, it was this anomalous time. And, and no Democrat has been willing to go to the mat to take it down since, which I, in my opinion, is just a massive strategic error that the Democrats really should have been paying attention to this and doing something about it. Because Taft-Hartley is, it's poison. It's poison for working people. It's poison for democracy. And it, uh, of course, it was intended as poison for unions. And it has taken us from, you know, being a third unionized to, to being, you know, 11% in the private sector, 6%. It's nuts. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you over on uh, Facebook. Our show is live on Facebook, and I posted a rant I do every morning, you know, about my topic for the day. And Diana Wagoner replies, factory jobs are never coming back. Workers must be retrained and relocated. Coal nor steel are coming back. Uh, I agree with you about coal. Steel jobs have increased in the last six months substantially as a consequence of Trump's tariffs. If factory comes back, they will be staffed by robots, by and large true. This economy will sink with these taxes. No, I don't think so. Tom, seniors and others will not be able to survive as they are now trying to decide between food or medicine. There's a lot of points here. Let me take these one at a time. Number one, yeah, you know, a lot of factory jobs it used to take 200 people to make a car. Now it takes 10 because of robots. You know, those jobs went to China. When those factories come back, they're going to come back as 10 worker factories, not 200 worker factories. Absolutely right. And we need to do something larger about that. But the point that people who look at this purely as a job thing, as Diana is doing here, miss, is where does the wealth go? I lived in China, November of 1986. It was an extraordinarily poor country. I lived in downtown Beijing at the International Acupuncture Training Institute. Everybody was poor. There were no cars. I stood on Tiananmen Square. There's an eight or 12 lane highway there, right? That goes right next to Tiananmen Square. I remember standing there talking with a few people who worked in the hospital that I worked in. 
and maybe once every 10 minutes, a single car would go by, and it was always a big black limousine, you know, carrying a, a government functionary. But there were thousands and thousands of bicycles. China was a very poor country. Chinese companies, and about half of them are state-owned, have been making the profits. People completely forget about profits. That's the whole point of business, right, is to make a profit. Where does that profit go? We have built China since 1986. Look at pictures of Beijing now. I mean, the tallest building in Beijing in 1986 was the Hilton Hotel at 10 stories. That was it. There were no skyscrapers. There was nothing. And now it's one of the most modern and well-developed countries in the world. Where did that money come from? It came from the profits made manufacturing products that were sold in the United States, at least in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Now they're being sold all over the world. So, yes, we bring the factories back home. We're not bringing back as many jobs. You're absolutely right. But we're bringing back the profits. Unless the companies who are building the factories here are Chinese companies, which is something that many countries don't allow. China, for example, doesn't allow. But, you know, we allow it. And so we've got now Japanese auto manufacturers making cars in the United States. Okay, great. Where's the profit going? Is it making America richer? No, that profit's going back to Japan. So this is where I keep saying uh, protectionist, not just tariffs, but a broadly protectionist trade policy. I also think that we should have limits on who can own American land. You know, and I realize I'm going into, into, into a whole variety of areas here that, where there's a lot of disagreement and debate on both right and left. But, uh, you know, this is how it is. And then uh, Diana makes the point, hey, you know, $70 a month more in just taxes, right? In, in Arkansas, she's talking about Arkansas, for somebody on Social Security is going to be a real hit. Absolutely right. But what happens is as those jobs come back, as those factories come back, as those profits come back to the United States, instead of seeing America's economy grow as a result of financialization, which is what we're seeing, basically companies rebuying their stocks and all these, you know, they're just playing financial games and, of course, loaning money to Americans and making money off the interest. That's the principal source of revenue now in the United States. Even car makers make more money in many cases on the interest on the lease than they do on the car itself. So if we brought back factories, now we're making real profits. Well, two things are going to happen from that. Number one, wages are going to start going up as profits go up. Number two, you're going to see some inflation from that. That's going to produce an increase in cost of living expenses, number one. And, number and, and, and secondly, as workers actually have decent jobs, they're going to start making more money. And as they start making more money, you're going to see that that's going to be slightly inflationary. And that's going to give you cost of living raises for Social Security as well. So I just think it's a good idea. And I'll leave it at that. Keith in Garden Valley, Idaho. Keith, what's on your mind? Tom, great to talk to you. It's an important topic. And the thing about, uh, I was going to kind of ask you, you sort of touched on it already, but it was kind of news to me that China doesn't allow American companies or any other companies in there. So how is like Nike and wherever and Black & Decker and all these other companies, what do they go, they, they become a global corporation before they go into China? Because Nike does not own a single factory. Nike does not make shoes. Nike buys shoes from Chinese manufacturers and also Taiwanese, but principally Chinese yeah. manufacturers, and they brand well, them. Know, All Nike is is a branding company. 
if you listen to the mainstream media, they're saying, well, we're trading with China, we're trading with China. Isn't the truth that we're actually trading with American companies that went over into China? I mean, no, like in, said- in China, if you're an American guy, you know, I, I used to do business in that part of the world. My best friend and former business partner, Jerry Schneiderman, and I owned a company called Langley St. Clair Instrumentation Systems in the early 80s, from 82 until around 86. And we sold computer parts that we imported principally from Japan. Back at that point in time, China wasn't making anything worth importing. And we had to pay a duty, by the way, when we imported them from Japan, because this was the 1980s. And so we had to fill out these duty forms. And the way the companies got around that was they lied about the value of the product on their invoices. And you could actually find companies that would you know, jigger the invoices. But the fact of the matter is that if you want to manufacture something, let's say you're Apple and you want to build iPhones in China, Apple doesn't own factories in China to make iPhones. It's, it, you know, it's principally, uh, what's the name of the company that used to put the nets out to stop people from Foxconn? Foxconn is not owned by Apple. Apple just buys their products. There are some companies that have built factories in China, for example, Caterpillar and Black & Decker, but they right. only own 49% of them. The Chinese own 51%. This is why everybody's screaming about intellectual property. The Chinese say, oh, sure, you want to build parts for Patriot missiles in China? No problem. We own 51% of the company, so we get to see all the blueprints. We get to see all the engineering. We get to, yeah. to see how all these products are manufactured. We get to be the ones who are manufacturing the high-tech machines that will do the high-tech manufacturing. And this is how China has stolen our technology. And, you know, Tom, I noticed that one of the first things when Trump started talking about the bad trade negotiations and everything, he, he blamed the trade negotiators. And I thought, you know, that's that just showed me right there that this whole thing's a scam with him because it's a lot worse than that. I mean, oh, yeah. the trade negotiators like Mickey Cantor and some of them, all they were just doing what they were told. Right, and and I think them. that you know I, I I you know I'm willing to give Bill Clinton and and George Bush uh, the elder uh, credit yeah. back in 1992. I think they really and truly believed that. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, an interconnected, interrelated, doing trade with each other world was going to be a peaceful world. And that was the animating principle, by the way, for the European Union. The whole point of the European Union was, you know, we've had two wars in a century. We had two wars in less than 50 years in Europe. I mean, just devastating wars, World yeah. War One and Two. And, and if all of these countries were interdependent rather than mutually right. independent. Oh, if yeah. they had to rely on each other, they would be much less likely to go to war. You, that makes a lot of sense. I think that when they tried to do a common currency, they made a huge mistake. And I think that when they, when they said that labor is free to move across borders and all these things, you know, I think they made a huge mistake. But, but the bottom line is that you know, in the 90s, the, the consensus was, and it started to emerge in the 60s, really, in the, in the 70s, that the consensus was that a world that trades with each other is a world that's less likely to have a war with each other. And there's probably actually a lot of truth to that. But you don't do it in a way that radically disadvantages one country over the other. And that's how we've done it, in part because the Republicans have been unwilling. When the entire world moved from tariffs, and by the way, we still have tariffs. The average tariff coming in the United States is 2%. We have tariffs on over 30,000 goods, and we always have. It's just that those tariffs have been dropped down to the point where they're meaningless. 
But when the whole rest of the world said, as they signed on to the World Trade Organization and these other groups, yeah, yeah, we'll do away with tariffs, they just shifted everything to the VAT tax, to value-added taxes, and they use VAT taxes as functional tariffs. Well, in the United States, when we had that conversation, you know, <laughs> Grover Norquist and the, and the billionaires and the Republicans were like, tax? Tax? We're not going to do a tax. No, you can't have it. So we ended up being the village idiots. We ended up being the ones being screwed the worst. And, and Americans know this, Keith. And if Democrats yeah, don't get in front of this cue ball here, they are going to lose the election in 2020. Yeah, well, I think if, if some of the media was against Trump to beginning, like say they had, they're going 30 miles an hour, they started going 80 miles an hour against him when he mentioned the word tariffs. I right. mean, you just never even hear that word anymore for the last 10 years until he brought it up. So I give him credit for that. And I appreciate you, you know, you're, you're, the whole, it's so convoluted the way it is in the media now. That, oh, you know, China's not going to pay for this. You are. Right. You know, and all, well, and we do. I mean, actually, you know, a company in the United States, oh. you know, when Walmart buys their junk from China, they're now going to have to pay a 25% premium. And that's going to well, cause yeah. Walmart to look at a lot of those products and say, can we find a U.S. source that's cheaper? And they will in some cases. And other, you know, in other cases, companies will start manufacturing that are 25% cheaper. The problem is that Trump did this in a way where this tariff could easily go away in 18 months. And when that happens, those companies are going to be screwed because it's going to be back to buying stuff from China for Walmart. So anyway, Keith, I got to run, but thank you for the call. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program, all three hours of our program, anytime you'd like? Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Harbin. Thank you. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold our book today is uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence by Kristen Godsey. And this is from the introduction titled, You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. The argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work-family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, 
including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate, as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well. Although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Choose your data source, and you find the same story. Unemployment and poverty plague women with children. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future. In the United States in 2013, women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty. Globally, women face higher rates of economic deprivation. Women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns. And when they do find employment, bosses pay them less than men. When states need to slash government spending on education, health care, or old age pensions, mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives must pick up the slack diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care work supports lower taxes. Lower taxes mean higher profits for those already at the top of the income ladder, mostly men. But capitalism was not always so savage. Throughout much of the 20th century, state socialism presented an existential challenge to the worst excesses of the free market. The threat posed by Marxist ideologies forced Western governments to expand social safety nets to protect workers from the unpredictable but inevitable booms and busts of the capitalist economy. After the Berlin Wall fell, many celebrated the triumph of the West, consigning socialist ideas to the dustbin of history. But for all its faults, state socialism provided an important foil for capitalism. It was in response to a global discourse of social and economic rights, a discourse that appealed not only to the progressive populations of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also to many men and women in Western Europe and North America, that politicians agreed to improve working conditions for wage laborers, as well as to create social programs for children, the poor, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled, mitigating exploitation and the growth of income inequality. Although there are, were important antecedents in the 1980s, once state socialism collapsed, 
capitalism shook off the constraints of market regulation and income redistribution. Without the looming threat of a rival superpower, the last 30 years of global neoliberalism have witnessed a rapid shriveling of social programs that protect citizens from cyclical instability and financial crises and reduce the vast inequality of economic outcomes between those at the top and those at the bottom of the income distribution. For much of the 20th century, Western capitalist countries also endeavored to outdo the East European countries in terms of women's rights, fueling progressive social change. For example, the state socialists in the USSR and Eastern Europe were so successful at giving women economic opportunities outside the home that initially, for the two decades after the end of World War II, women's wage work was conflated with the evils of communism. The American way of life meant male breadwinners and female homemakers. But slowly, socialist championing of women's emancipation began to chip away at the leave-it-to-beaver ideal. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development and why women have better sex under socialism. Right now on the line with us is Ben G. Price, the author of a new book. It's called How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property. Ben, welcome to the program. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Tom. Really I should add, Ben is also the National Organizing Director for CELDEF, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, CELDF.org. And HowWealthRulesTheWorld.com is the website, and you can tweet Ben at Ben G. Price. The Dictatorship of Property. I mean, you open the book in your introduction, first sentence, the first paragraph. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America and nations that emulate its governing principles are governed by a dictatorship of property. What do you mean? Well, I'm not talking about people who own cars and homes. We're talking about really the amassing of property, the amassing of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. But this dictator of property isn't really about the ownership itself. We certainly have a real problem with the disparity between wealth and poverty and the disparity between workers and bosses and so forth. But what we're really focusing on in the book here is that we have a system of law that favors and does a lot more than favor, um, actually um, sets up a system that allows those who control the greatest amount of wealth to have the greatest amount of governing authority. And, and this goes back um, to the, uh, the Federalists who drafted the U.S. Constitution uh, following their uh, overturning of the Articles of Confederation and turning their backs on, really, the aspirations that were put forward in the Declaration of Independence by the revolutionaries. So how does this play out today? Well, that's the thing that I really wanted to capture in the book was the contrast between what the aspirations of revolutionaries were, what the Federalists, and just to be clear, they were counter-revolutionaries and of a quite a different stripe and opinion than the folks who fought that revolution and who should be rightly called the Founding Fathers rather than the Federalists. But also through the book, contrasting what was put together and how private law was sewn into the public law of our U.S. Constitution to protect private interests and wealth, and how that plays out today in our communities. And I've been working for about 15 years now with communities that have been trying to protect themselves against large corporate projects in the fracking fields of the U.S., 
the extraction of so-called natural gas. I think it's natural when it's left in the ground, not when they pull it into the open and contribute to the climate crisis that we're experiencing. But the inability of the people in our communities to engage in community self-government and to govern the behavior of people hiding behind the corporate veil with limited liability protections, which means that they're above the law. They're not responsible to the communities that they're doing harm to. And those corporations working hand-in-hand with our state and federal governments and being protected by our so-called justice system in ways that make it impossible for citizens to enact local laws to protect their rights, to protect their health and safety, and to protect their natural environments from destruction. It plays out in these current battles where our municipal communities are being treated like resource colonies and sacrifice zones. That's the reality of it. It's what I've seen up front and close up and personal. And it's becoming more broadly understood that the system that we're working and and laboring under is, well, it's not broken. It's fixed. It's been fixed, like a crooked game of cards. As in the fix is in, yeah. The fix is in. And so the question raised throughout the book and after going through how the system works, it really is about how does wealth, how does the accumulated concentration of property into fewer and fewer hands, how does that translate into a system where that 1% that's been identified, the Occupy movement, the 1% versus the 99%, how is it that that small, small minority actually gets to set policy and gets to forbid the rest of the population from standing in the way of their profit making? Right. Well, you know, I mean, this is what Gillens and Page pointed out in that landmark study a couple of years ago is that the interest, the legislative interests, of the top 1% have something like a 70% correlation between what they want and what they get. Of the top 10%, it's like a 60% correlation or something like that, if I'm remembering right. I'm guessing Mm -hmm. you probably know this much better than me. And for the bottom 90%, there is literally no correlation between what they want and what Congress passed as legislation. In fact, the phrase that they used was that it was the equivalent of random noise. It is completely, you know, the the desires of the bottom 90% are completely ignored by our political system. So short of rewriting our Constitution, which ain't going to happen any day soon, what do we do? Well, it it absolutely, that that study um, illustrates just those things. But what has been needed since then, and it was what I was concerned about, is why is it, not just why, but how does that process work? What are the mechanisms? And is it just corruption? Is it just buying off legislators and judges? And no, the answer is that even if we elect the perfect pal of democracy, put them in their office, and you find that you know the program that they're allowed to run in terms of governing process does not allow them to create the outcomes that actually represent the interests of the majority. You know, it's true that we're not going to overturn or change the U.S. Constitution overnight. The one thing that has been happening, and I've been working with communities at the local level for 15 years now, is that they've been enacting local laws that challenge the system, that challenge the claim that rights that are vested in corporate property, you know, the idea that that whole corporate personhood thing, um, we get lost in that. We get lost in 
what's wrong with um, Citizens United and so forth. And I'd say that if we overturned Citizens United, we would not have done nearly enough to fix the problems that we face. No, I, I get that. I get that yeah. you know, totally. But from the point of view of a person who's listening to this interview right now, who's thinking, okay, in the next you know year and a half as we're running up to this election, I can do something. I can lobby my legislators. I can get my friends to sign petitions. Where should they be focusing their attention? Or I can campaign for a particular candidate who's talking about changing the system in ways that are more consonant with what you're talking about, Ben. What is your advice to that person? Tom, I'm going to say something that may be controversial, and that is that begging the legislators that have enacted the laws that keep us in the box and control is probably not going to get us what we want. That voting your favorite candidate into office may improve things compared to where they are, but it's not going to change the system. So what should people do then? We have to do what the civil rights activists did. We have to confront the obstruction of democracy. We have to do lunch counter sit-ins, if you will, but that's not the model. That, I mean, that's, that's the type of thing. So what's the model? Bring, we have to bring attention to the fact that we're being deprived of the right of self-determination in places where we live, and that means making local law that is, even if it's preempted by the state or federal government, if it is in protection of the rights of the people and to protect our own home base, our environment, no, I, uh, I, I, I get that, Ben, and, and uh, you know, and I'm totally supportive of you and the work that CELDEF are doing, and CELDEF has mm-hmm. been, you know, helping communities pass these laws all over the country, but you've never had one that was sustained. Well, we don't expect uh, any more than under Plessy versus Ferguson that um, made segregation by race perfectly legal and constitutional, according to the Supreme Court, during years and years after the Civil War, we thought we had ended slavery and what we had is apartheid. What could possibly change that? Well, not asking the courts if it would be okay if we ignore what they've said wasn't okay, and that was integration. So we have to turn our backs on the courts. This is controversial. Although it was the court that overturned Plessy and uh, Brown v. Board. Well, not until the towns were in an uproar, not until the people had stood up and said, we will not accept this. Right. And and the courts have been pretty studious about reversing and chipping away at those decisions from the late 50s and early 60s as well, and the, and the Voters' Right Act and so forth. And so what we didn't get, interestingly, what we didn't get when the courts ruled on those decisions was an absolute constitutional right of the people not to be discriminated against. Right. What we got was decisions that were grounded in the Commerce Clause that said that businesses that engaged in commerce could not discriminate. Great book, How Wealth Rules the World by Ben Price. Check out celdf.org too, C-E-L-D-F.org, and check out the extraordinary work that they're doing. It is a long, long battle. Ben, thanks a lot for the book and for being on the program. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Hey, Louise and I have been using CBD for a couple of years now for basically pain relief and sleep, but we had been using CBD that also had some pot in it, I suppose, because of, you know, it's legal here in Oregon. Um, But now there's a CBD oil that's legal all over the United States. It's the best quality you can get. And it's derived from hemp, which is, you know, related to marijuana, but it's not marijuana. And so it's, it's legal and it doesn't get you high, and, but it does you know, have these extraordinary properties 
of uh, pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. It's from New Leaf Naturals. NuleafNaturals.com is the website. Um, CBD oil, non-intoxicating, so it's ideal if you're looking for the health benefits of cannabinoids without, you know, getting high. This does not get you high. It's non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory uh, properties. And the, th this is the brand that, that Louise and I trust and use, New Leaf, NU Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals, the highest quality concentrated CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and as I said, the only ingredient is hemp, so it's totally pure and simple and legal. So go to newleafnaturals.com, n-u-leafnaturals.com, to save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get 30% off. And if you're the first person to tweet me the NewLeafNaturals.com website, I'll send you a free bottle of New Leaf Natural CBD oil. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price. Uh, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure, but it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings, International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries 
with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a Constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record had, was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the Constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence and it tells the tale I'll share in Chapter 2. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary. Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first 10 amendments to the federalist document, the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies they compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. Sandra in Pensacola, Florida. Hey, Sandra, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? I just was listening to your uh, conversation between your last guest, and you said something about 70% of the one percenters get what they want. No, they, they get the it 70% percent, of the time, yeah. 70% of the time, okay. And um, the 10 percenters get it 60% of the time? Yeah, those aren't exact um, numbers, but it's, you know, you can okay. look up the study. Right. I just wondered, when does a country enter into an oligarchy? We're there. Um, 
Uh, we're there. Jimmy Carter on this. On, when on, you said that. Yeah, on this, on this program you, three years ago, four years ago, whenever it was, Jimmy Carter came on and I asked him what he thought about Citizens United. The clip lives on YouTube. You can easily find it. And he said, uh, you, you know, I said, is the United States still a democracy? What do you think uh, Citizens United means? And he says, we're now an oligarchy. We're run by oligarchs, by the rich. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's what I needed to know. I just needed to know whether we were still in a democracy. Yeah. Because I, it doesn't seem like we are. I think not. I agree with you, Sandra, and, and I agree with Jimmy Carter, and we've got to do something about it. And this is going to be the, this is the big struggle of our time that the media won't discuss because the media is also owned by these same oligarchs that are controlling our political system. Sandra, thank you for the call. Patricia and Vashon Washington. Hey, Patricia, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing? Good. What's up? Well, I just want to say something. You know, you had a, a person on that was talking about people should be doing more civil disobedience and protesting, and I think Representative Procan has gone through that, too. And I've been arrested a lot, somewhere between 65 and 100 times, which has been proven in a courtroom. And I just want to say that I don't think people should be, especially representatives and important people, should be saying that people should be doing civil disobedience. This is an individual decision to make, and there's a lot of really threatening things that happen that can affect your life. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely um, right. You've been arrested many times doing yeah. civil disobedience. Is that what you're talking about, Patricia? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, things can happen from the police while you're being arrested. Things can happen in jail. When you get out, you may not be able to get a job, depending upon where you live. You may not be able to get housing or have a hard time getting housing. You have been given no financial help or promise of the group that you're with that, you know, there will be a place to to live and, and some kind of work to do. So... This is a, a real serious decision, and it's not. it shouldn't be taken lightly. Yes, I agree. I absolutely agree. Patricia, thank you. Spot on. Jeff in Asheville, North Carolina. What's on your mind, Jeff? Hey, the guest you were talking to really reminded me of Marianne Williamson in a lot of ways. And by the way, I would love it if people would donate to make sure she gets into the debate. I've known Marianne Williamson for several decades. She is extraordinary. She is one of the most brilliant people I know. She understands politics at a level of depth that, I, frankly, several politicians I know don't. I think it would be great if she was on the stage, and I'm not sure that she's hit that 65,000 donor level yet. Marianne2020.com. Thank you. Marianne2020.com is her website. So back to what you were saying, Jeff. Well, it was funny how he also reminded me of what Bill Maher said on Friday. He said, Oprah would be able to win this because she's a celebrity, she's been on TV, and Donald Trump, same thing. And more to the point, she's unconventional. Donald Trump was strange and unconventional. And that's what Marianne Williamson is. Not to mention the fact that she has this special relationship where you know, she's very vocal about faith, let's just say. So that would appeal to people who are not liberals because all those people are into the Bible and Jesus and going to church. Yeah. Trying to find someone that's going to appeal to those people, right? And that's why it's not obvious that she would be the one. Yeah. That's not a politician. But they love people who aren't politicians. Donald Trump wasn't a politician, right? Yeah. How much more simple than you have to make it? No, I got and it. I got it. And I would, I, would, I would love to see Marianne on the debate stage, and I think she'd make a hell of a president. And, you know, I, I realize speaking of a more or less spiritual candidate as, and using the word hell is probably not, not the most appropriate thing. But I, I really like Marianne, both personally and professionally and politically. And I would love to see her in the race in a very real and meaningful way. She has a 
a lot to contribute. Jeff, thanks for the call. James in Minneapolis, listening on AM 950. Hey, James, what's up? This is in response to your guest on the show and what we can do to help fix Citizens United one state at a time. Mm -hmm. It was a speaker, Ray Metcalf, on Ralph Nader's show a while back. He's a two-term Alaska state senator who came up with legislation based on the Supreme Court overturning Citizens United. Are you talking by constitutional amendment? That's part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's the principal struggle right now. Move to amend.org and, and citizen.org. There's a bunch of groups that have been proposing explicit, specific constitutional amendments to say corporations are not people and money is not speech. And God bless them because we need it. James, I got to run. I'm sorry. It's the end of the show. Thanks so much for the call. And thanks for listening to AM 950. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. It's uh, another fascinating day. We'll be back tomorrow as the freak show in Washington, D.C. rolls on, and we all try to figure out exactly what we can do about it. And there's a lot we can do about it. So anyhow, to get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Democracy is not a spectator sport. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 